Hello, everyone. Welcome back to BungaCast. Welcome back to the Reading Club. It's so nice to see you all, um, by which I mean specifically George and Phil. It's been a little while since we've done this. They've been away on holiday. And uh, well, so has BungaCast, as, as you'll have noticed, because we haven't put anything out for the past two weeks. But we're back now. Uh, the long August holidays, um, Italian style that uh, George and Phil have taken. Are uh, are now over, and it's it's back to the back to the drudgery of podcasting. Um, so um, this is the second part of theme two on cynical ideology, and here we're specifically looking at the question of trust through a reading of a chapter from Anthony Giddens' The Consequences of Modernity. The reason I, I kind of brought this topic uh, up and and kind of wanted it. To be, you know, to take to, to to be to be a part of this broader discussion of of cynical ideology today is to try to get beyond uh, two kind of uh, opposing positions. One is to be concerned about declining social trust and say this is just a bad thing nakedly, and on the other hand, to just dismiss concern about trust as purely an elite moral panic because I think it kind of goes beyond both of those and. If we explore it further, uh, it, we might, you know, discover that pe- at periods which were more, much more differ- hierarchical, much more deferential, in which you know social betters were trusted, um, were more revolutionary periods than ours. So it, I don't. It's not as straightforward to say, well, it's declining trust. We don't believe in the authorities. That means that we're. Um, much more self-standing agents who believe in ourselves, you know, that it's not so, um, it's not, it's not so clear cut. So anyway, um, let me say a little bit about Giddens and set this up um, before uh, George and Phil come back in and we actually discuss the the text and actually more than discussing the text itself, extrapolate from it. Um, so I, Anthony Giddens, for those who aren't familiar, is one of the most renowned sociologists alive today. Uh, his early work concerned the nature of sociology as a discipline, kind of returning back to the classics and dealing with questions of structure and agency. Um, but his most important work, in my view, and I think most people would agree with this, is the stuff done over the 1990s, looking at modernity and globalization. He is, it's important to note, one of the, the, the theorists, I suppose, of the third way, the that sort of supposed melding of uh, socialism and capitalism advocated by Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, in which any sort of connection that there used to be on the left between uh, a sort of economic determinism derived from Marxism was broken with entirely in favor of an emphasis on finding social justice within market society. This was obviously very you know, clearly seen in, in Blair and Clinton's politics. But I think the shallowness of that politics, which we're obviously hugely critical of, shouldn't color our perception and appreciation of Giddens entirely. Um, because I think he's a lot more uh, of a sophisticated sociologist than that. He was, uh, you know, he wrote one book prior to this period of the 90s concerned with modernity and uh, globalization, in which he was critical of Marxism, but he's quite a sympathetic and well-read critic of Marxism. Uh, But his ultimate criticism is that Marx, and especially later Marxists, were economically reductionists, ignoring other forms of power relations, whether it's the nation state or uh, racial and sexual oppression and so on. Uh, or criticizing Marxists for seeing these things as only epiphenomena of class relations. Um, we can return to a little bit to, to, to what might be the problem with that. Um, if we, you guys want to have a say on that. Um, but I want to turn now to saying 
specifically what the content of the consequences of modernity is, because here um, we kind of said as the reading uh, chapter three, but um, the discussion of trust is set in a much broader conception of uh, modernity and trying to assert itself, I think Giddens is trying to do, into a debate about post-modernity. And as we'll see, uh, he can't really be put in the same category as those who say we're now in post-modernity. Um, so I think one of the ways that we can see the link between Giddens' work on modernity and his advocacy of the third way is in this book. Um, but it's not so direct as or so crude as saying, you know, we should we can have the market, the market is efficient, but we can then redistribute the gain to the market. Uh, it goes much deeper than that. So one way of presenting this, uh, Giddens presents two images of two classic images of modernity. There's uh, that derived from Max Weber. That's Weber's Iron Cage, which is this pessimistic vision of modernity, whereby uh, progress ac actually ends up just locking in human beings and their capacity for agency within rigid bureaucracies. Um, which is a pessimistic view, which we encountered actually uh, in discussing Foucault, kind of in, in some ways, um, someone to have inherited Weber's pessimism about modernity. The other vision is that of Marx's monster. So for Marx, modernity is both terrible and destructive, as well as brilliant and full of potential. And that's potential which could be seized upon and directed by human beings to create a more humane world. Uh, socialism, which itself would be a form of post-modernity. So I think this is interesting, um, also because Giddens notes in the book that no one now identifies post-modernity with what it used to mean, which was the replacement of capitalism by socialism. So, you know, post-modernity now is just everything um, is kind of flexible, free-floating. We identify according to, you know, gender and race and whatever rather than class. Uh, globalization blurs the boundaries of nation states and sovereignty, all that kind of stuff. Um, there was a different vision of what a world beyond modernity was, and that was socialism. Uh, which is something that we've now forgotten. Um, by the way, if you want to learn a little bit more about this and to kind of get a grasp, a greater grasp on these conceptions of modernity, I can point you to a reading club that we did last year, which was on Marshall Berman's All That Is Solid. Uh, that's episode number 227 from November last year. Um, that's good to kind of refer back because a lot of this, there's a certain confluence um, with what we're discussing here. So, um, I, I think one way of trying to get a grasp fundamentally about what Giddens is saying about modernity and what his more positive vision of it is, is that instead of Weber's iron cage or Marx's monster, Giddens advances this idea of a juggernaut, a runaway engine of enormous power, which collectively as human beings, we can't drive, we can drive to some extent, but which also threatens to rush out of our control and which could render itself asunder. So here we're getting a little bit closer to this third way idea where, um, you know, you're in a globalized world where collective agency is much more limited than the vision presented in Marxian socialism. And that risk is everywhere. But something can still be done to, to make society better. Um, but we just have to kind of rein in um, our expectations of what our collective agency could be. Um, so I think that already paints a little bit of a, of a sense of, of where Giddens is going and what his portrayal of uh, a modernity which is not totally out of control, not totally dominating, but at the same time is uh, difficult to completely um, bring under human mastery. Um, a final point, just I think about Giddens' um, kind of perspective on things, which I think will become clear as we go into the discussion, is that for him, the question of knowledge reflexive knowledge, uh, consciousness of our own knowledge and, and the knowledge created about the world takes on a much more central role for him than a Marxist emphasis on power, which would specifically be economic power. 
So uh, ultimately for Giddens, modernity is important. For him, it's discontinuous with traditional societies. And I, that's why I think Giddens is worth reading. Um, and as I said before, he's not a thinker of post-modernity, which is to say those thinkers who emphasize things like the fragmented self, um, one in which epistemology is really important, where you know we there is no there is no truth, um, everything is discourse and all that kind of thing. Instead, he argues that what we have today is still modernity, but it's an age in which the consequences of modernity are becoming more radicalized and universalized than before. And the reason for this is, is that today's modernity is one in which the remnants of tradition and providential outlooks have been cleared away. I think this is really important. It's, it's basically saying that we live in a naked modernity, or to put it in more Marxian language, in a kind of more naked capitalism. Giddens, of course, de-emphasizes the category of capitalism and places it alongside other things like military power and industrialism and surveillance. Um, so there's other sources of power for, for Giddens than, than the supposedly economic reductionist vision of Marxism, um, a vision which I disagree with. But anyway, um, I think there's another um, way of discussing this, and I would refer uh, you back, listener, if you're interested, to another reading club, which we did in October of last year, uh, which was on Gaspar Miklos Tamash's essay, Telling the Truth About Class. It was episode 221, where there's also a similar idea there about the capitalism that emerges after the 1970s, which is a completely post-traditional capitalism, in which uh, the old forms of domination based on caste, which, whether that be race or whatever it is, um, are done away with and we're left now with just the pure domination of the market. Um, and that also bears some similarities to, to what Giddens is presenting here in his discussions of the social consequences of modernity. Um, I was going to say some things about what... Um, how Giddens sees modernity as discontinuous from traditional societies, but I don't want to go on for too long. I'll just list them. Uh, the separation of time and space, the disembedding of social systems, and the reflexing, reflexive ordering and reordering of social relations. Um, again, if you, if you want to uh, read more about this, and if this is new to you, uh, chapter one of the book actually goes through all of this and, and sets uh, in a bit of context what we read in chapter three and what we're about to discuss. Um, so um, I'm just going to finish with a quote from uh, from Giddens to from chapter one, again, which sets this all into context. What is characteristic of modernity is not an embracing of the new for its own sake, but the presumption of wholesale reflexivity, including reflection upon the nature of reflection itself. Probably we are only now beginning to realize in a full sense how deeply unsettling this outlook is. For when the claims of reasons replaced those of tradition, they appeared to offer a sense of certitude greater than that provided by pre-existing dogma. But this idea only appears persuasive so long as we do not see that the reflexivity of modernity actually subverts reason. And Giddens notes shortly after this uh, passage, which I read, uh, by noting that the equation of knowledge with certainty has turned out to be misconceived. So we're in some sense dependent uh, in our societies on reflexively applied knowledge, to put it in Giddens' terms, but also aware that knowledge is provisional, um, that you know science is always kind of being updated and that all this stuff that is presented as the science and fact is, is um, you know, subject to question and revision. So it, it means that we live in a world in where things are much more up for question and where we supposedly can't just be conscious, we can't just be... Um, happy to be confident in reason to resolve things as the old enlightenment attitude had it because uh, we are much more uh, reflexive beings and conscious of this uncertainty and con and conscious of risk, which is a very important 
bit, which uh, we'll come to in the discussion. So anyway, I want to carry on too long. So to get back to the kind of more theoretical questions, I, I did want to ask whether we thought in having read the Giddens, how much is the contemporary loss of trust institutions uh, in our times and the end of history and the end of the end of history, something that is could be identified as a modern phenomenon, that is to say, uh, that belongs to modernity as a whole, a necessary consequence of modernity, or is it a specific product of the radicalized modernity that Giddens identifies, or, um, you know, to put in other terms, post-modernity. Um, how, how do we see it? Is, you know, is there something to distinguish the contemporary loss of trust from, from things that happened in the past? Is it just on a continuum? It's, I mean, I suppose it depends what level, you know, you're thinking of it as. So much of what Giddens accounts for here, I think, can be, you know, very, well, I think it can be accounted for in a more consistent fashion through, you know, like a classical category of Marxian theory like alienation in terms of the connection between lack of control and the subjective um, outlook and uh, disposition that results from lack of control in society. Um, and that seems to me to be, you know, in terms of characterizing modernity and scare quotes, it seems to me a much kind of more effective, gives a much more effective grip than Giddens' more, you know, kind of uh, hodgepodge of different theorists and insights that are, you know, kind of blended together. But if you're talking, you know, at um, in terms of different periods, uh, I suppose I would hazard to say, like, that we probably, you know, the end... The end of history should coincide with more mistrust, it seems to me, right? Um, in the sense that if it is, if it does correspond to the end of kind of ideological contestation and the end of effort to kind of motivate people through um through politics and through the belief structures associated with politics and with political passivity and quiescence, then you're more likely to see mistrust. You know, logically speaking, mistrust would correspond with that period. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I mean, I guess to you know to link it to modernity or to kind of address the question that you that you asked, Alex. The I guess there's one approach which says essentially trust doesn't matter. Like it actually is a kind of a non-problem because it it doesn't really matter how people um, feel towards institutions or feel towards the rest of society. There is a um, there is a a system. And this is what Anna Smith says, not from the benevolence of the butcher, the baker, the brewer that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. There's a, there's a structure that means that social institutions continue to function and reproduce themselves, whether you trust in them or not. You have to have um, very, very little, um, I guess, very like you don't need to put yourself in other people's shoes. You don't need to project any feelings onto them. You don't need to have any kind of effective yeah. um relationship with them of any sort it's just the fact that you know you just you just barely assume that they don't want to starve and and so that's why well, they do what they do and and this is like the i guess the cynicism that would be baked into market society from the start um but which as we discussed last time you know takes on a particularly important role today where um you know you don't have to believe you just continue doing it um which you know is, is the whole basis of what Zizek argues um and uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's true, though, I guess w what does present a problem and not just for elites who want this society to work, but I mean, 
for anyone even seeking to overthrow this current order, um, it would also present a problem that um, it becomes a problem in terms of motivation and social purpose, I think, if people don't trust in institutions, that uh, if you become an isolated individ individual, the the tendency is towards privatism, pessimism, you know, further atomization, rather than um, any sort of clubbing together to form alternative institutions. And I think that's the the kind of thing that we're, we're faced with very starkly today. Hey there, you've reached the end of a short excerpt from an episode that's been released only to our patrons. If you'd like to join us and gain access to around two Patreon-exclusive episodes a month, please go to patreon.com slash We'd love to have you.